Abysses, a.k.a. Responsible, proper, social distance, shit-talking from spare bedrooms across exurban Atlanta. Welcome to the Godless Heathens Podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Don. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jerry. This is a podcast by atheists that talks about a lot of things, not just atheism. We will challenge your assumptions and ours, too. Definitely not here to preach to the atheist choir, but to critique, ridicule, and poke fun at anyone, especially ourselves. So join us as we examine the crossroads of politics and religion from the secular perspective. And remember, don't believe everything you hear in this podcast or anywhere else for that matter until you've independently verified it for yourself. In other words, duck, duck, go that shit. Episode 89. Special episode. Very special episode. Expert guest episode. So Dr. Susan Conradson is an associate professor of psychology and also the director of the Women's Studies Program at Barry College in Rome, Georgia, also home of friend of the pod, Professor Mark. It is also part of the 14th Congressional District here in Georgia, home of Congresswoman She Who Shall Not Be Named yes. Here. <laughs> Dr. Conradson, or as we call her, Susan, has an undergraduate degree in psychology from UGA and received her MA and PhD in clinical psychology. So she is a doctor, not a real doctor, <laughs> a, like a doctor, like Jill Biden doctor. But University of Louisville, the former home of disgraced football coach Bobby Petrino, also the home of Papa John's Cardinal Stadium, and the less spoken about him, the better. All jokes aside, she is expert in gender in the media, eating disorders, gendered violence, and is going to help us separate fact from conventional wisdom on topics like sex addiction and purity culture. Most importantly, she is a longtime friend and a recent friend of the pod who also attended one of our pandemic driveway drinking soirees, which will go down as like, remember that crazy thing we did in 2020? Remember that summer when we drank in the driveway? <laughs> yeah, where we, we had to drink in the driveway separated so we didn't get each other sick and some of us die. Good times. But she also enjoys a good craft beer, so we will let her start the what are you imbibing tonight segment. So what are you drinking, Susan? So, well, first of all, thanks for having me, y'all. I'm excited to do this. I am drinking one of my favorite beers. It's by Founders Brewery. It's called Blushing Monk. It is a high-gravity sour. comes in at 9.2%. And it is a score of 94 by the Beer Advocate. And it also makes my absolute favorite beer, Masagave. But I do not have one of those to drink tonight. Coming with the metrics, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Looking for somebody's job on the pod with a recommendation of a beer like that. I mean, she looks sounds like she's been doing this for 89 episodes or something. <laughs> Bro. <laughs> Jeff. You got your beer at the ready because we're on camera yep. right now oh, before yeah, I yeah. turn you off. You so uh, I found one from Pontoon Brewing over towards your guys' neck of the woods, Susan and Jerry. And this one is actually a collaboration with Good Word Brewing, which I've not been to yet, but I want to go to. And this is a triple IPA 
called Center of the Universe, which I am right now, actually. And it rates in at 10%. So I got you beat by six point there, Susan. So it's pretty good. Pretty good. Mr. Don? Well, my wine rack is no less barren than it was two weeks ago. So I grabbed the last two beers that I have in the fridge from my uh, long day lager six pack. I think it's time to double mask up and go to the liquor store. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we'll talk about it, but I'm one half vaccinated. So one foot out the door. So am I. Excellent. Today. Yep. And Susan is fully vaccinated. Nice. Which brand did you get, Susan? Moderna. And how did it make you feel? The second time around. Oh, it was not good at all. I had a 103.1 fever. Wow. Yep. I was so sick. You think that was a reaction to the microchip? (laughs) I think so. I think so. (laughs) And then I started doing all kinds of crazy things. So, you know, that damn microchip. And I think it prevented you from doing a, either coming over our house or one of the driveway things because you were... Sick as a dog. Yes, it, it and prevented. I was. We were supposed to have a nice socially distanced beer of actually Masagave founders kind True. of seltzer at your True. place, but alas, I was very sick for a solid forty-eight hours. Wow! No wow. longer looking yeah. as forward to my second dose as I was a few minutes ago. <laughs> so, Don, you got the Moderna. Also? I got the Moderna as well, and so did Kim. And Jerry, what'd you get? Pfizer. Pfizer. I didn't realize that the Moderna has like three times... I knew this was going to cause a rabbit hole. The active ingredient compared to Pfizer. It's like 100 micrograms versus 30. It sounds like more people are having reactions to the Moderna than they are the Pfizer. Yeah. That's not a scientific blinded study or anything, but... The next time they do mushrooms, they're going to trip way harder than we are. (laughs) (laughs) Three times as hard, actually. I'm drinking a gift from a friend of the pod, a Founders Panther Cub. So this is second week in a row I've been gifted a good beer. This is a porter, a barrel-aged porter with vanilla and maple syrup aged in bourbon barrels. And it's 9.2 and it's delicious. And thank you, Susan. You're welcome. Who gave this to me. Very nice. And if you're a nice listener, not only will you give us a beer, but you'll give us a five-star rating in the podcasting app or service <laughs> of your choice. Look at that. Just quick. Nice. Quick transition. Just right rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Well done. Well done. He rolls out of bed doing segues, man. It's, it's amazing. So here's where the lightheartedness ends for a bit. Because even though it feels like several tragedies ago, there was a horrific series of murders here in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago that had all of the makings of kind of a purely American story. Easy access to guns, racism, evangelical Christianity. Purity culture. Misogynism. Yeah. All those things wrapped up in the massage parlor shootings and we talked about this quite a bit the three of us and Susan you and I talked about it everybody kind of looked at it particularly at the beginning through kind of their lens their prior beliefs and anti you know the anti-Asian racism a big thread oh he was an evangelical Christian oh he was repressing his sex urges oh he got a gun the same day and shot them you could filter it all through there but What is tangible? What should you believe? You're not going to get the cause of this. But when you hear 
that he was being treated for sex addiction. From a professional standpoint, Susan, is it a thing? And when we hear it, particularly used in the media, what should that make us think about? So... Good question. So from a professional standpoint, sex addiction does not exist in the DSM. The last time they made a new DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, right, Mm -hmm. that lists all the different psychological disorders. The last time that it was revised, there were groups lobbying to have sex addiction occluded. And the groups that are lobbying, though, to have it included are oftentimes... Let me guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. (laughs) Yeah. You want to take a guess? (laughs) Christian Counseling Centers. Uh, the treatment centers, yeah. for sure, because if it's not diagnosable, mm-hmm. they don't get paid for it. For the, from the you insurance company. Yes. The insurance company will only pay for things that are um, recognized by the DSM. Like depression. Yes. Depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, all that kind of stuff, right? But with um, sex addiction, the sex addiction treatment centers in different places, they... In fact, there was some... There was some news thing that came out that said research shows sex addiction is real, but it's all funded by the treatment centers. So you have to discount that. So the APA, um, the American Psychological Association, says we don't recognize sex addiction as a thing. You can't go and get diagnosed with it. Where it gets a little complicated, some people say, should there be like a hypersexual disorder? That's not in there either. What would the difference be? The difference? Well... With the addictions that we have, you have to have withdrawal. If you're addicted to heroin or you're addicted to alcohol, there's some sort of withdrawal. And and sex addiction doesn't seem, it doesn't follow that same pattern, right, of a withdrawal. They know that they can't actually get it in as like a sex addiction because addiction, there's certain specific criteria you have to have, you have to meet to get that addiction. So then they're like, let's maybe talk about it as a hypersexual disorder because then it's you're actually not using that addiction terminology. So they're trying to be like, hey, let's put it in this way, but still saying that the person has these strong urges and they can't control them. But of course, then you're like, who gets to decide what's the normal level of sexual desire, right? And and sexual behavior. And I mean, so that there's a lot of reasons why I don't believe hypersexual will come in as well, because that's a judgment. There's a there's a sort of a moral judgment that's being placed there. I think the one area in which there's a little bit of talk about is perhaps for some people, maybe it could be a type of kind of like um, obsessive compulsive disorder. An obsessive compulsive disorder, you have an obsession, mm-hmm. and then there's a compulsion that you have to do. Yeah. So they're kind of, some people argue maybe for a small group, maybe they have a compulsion that's sexual in nature or an obsession that's sexual in nature and then they have a compulsion. But that's kind of a stretch, right? So the short answer is it's not a diagnosable disorder. But but they're trying to rebrand it. Yes. But it's a cottage industry. Yes, yes. And people make a lot of money yes. off of, of that. Um, and... This idea for for me when when I hear these people talking about and especially when he's like, well, I you know I had to kill them because I needed to remove temptation, is using that rhetoric of sex addiction mm-hmm. to absolve themselves himself of responsibility, you know, and and so that oftentimes you hear people will use that idea of 
I'm a sex addict to almost be like, I can't control. I can't, I, I'm not responsible for what I did. I can't control it. Yeah. And I think it can be used as an excuse. But that's, that's kind of where the evangelical theology kind of enters into it, though, is, is they have this whole mindset about it's the woman's responsibility to dress appropriately. She's the tempter. It's not the guy's fault. Um, and, and so that you know, just kind of feeds into that whole, whole line. And that, start, that starts so young, and it doesn't think about the dress codes in schools. Mm-hmm. Starting at a really young age, we teach our girls, right, that they have to be super careful about if they have spaghetti straps or not on their little eight-year-old shoulders because they shouldn't be inciting lust in males. And then it continues. You definitely see that in the, you know, especially in sort of the purity culture is this idea that women are responsible for bringing about desire in men. And women should try to, and girls, right, should, should clothe themselves modestly and they should do all these different things. And it's completely absolving males of that response, first of all, of the responsibility. And I think it's really insulting because men can look at somebody and if they find them attractive, that doesn't mean they're suddenly compelled to enact sexual assault on them. I think men are very capable of having restraint, but it teaches that that dynamic that girls are to blame for bringing that. And then I think that creates a really unhealthy dynamic. There's a part in the Bible where Jesus talks about if you lust in your heart, that's the same as performing it in reality. Thought crime. And so that puts a whole nother mind trip on the guy is so if I have these sexual thoughts by looking that I'm evil, so I can't control my mind, because that's a normal human response. And they're told that that's that's of Satan or, you know, and so that puts another layer onto it, you know, so. That line got Jimmy Carter in trouble, by the way. It did. Right. That's right. Right. Jimmy Jimmy Carter said that he, in an interview, I think, Playboy, 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 right. Of all places, he said he lusted in his heart. So therefore he was he was guilty for it. Like when you talked about purity culture. So you're supposed to. A woman, and 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 the guy as well, because he was trying to to repress these thoughts and urges that, that have been put in his brain as exceedingly unhealthy and evil. But when does purity culture, if you know the answer to this, are women supposed to flip a switch at the altar? How does that work? Okay, that that is so. I I teach a class on human sexuality. It's one of the courses I teach at Barry. One of the things that we talk a lot about in there is, and I've had students over the years even actually come and talk to me about sort of growing up in purity culture, and then they're about to get married and feeling a lot of anxiety and stress. This idea of like, sex is something sinful and desire is bad and all this stuff until suddenly the minute that you get married, now you're supposed to flip the switch mm-hmm. and everything you've repressed or suppressed or felt guilty about, now you're supposed to feel comfortable. It's the most beautiful expression of love that you can show. And an hour ago, it was the worst horrible sin you could commit. Right. Like, and <laughs> if, you had, if you'd had the same act before, yeah. an hour before. Yeah, right before right? the wedding. Horrible. Right. Going to burn forever. Afterwards, God, best, down. best, you know, it's two becoming one as God intended. Okay. And it messes that, with people's that, heads. Way, yeah. Sounds horrible yeah. <laughs> and sounds like a ton of pressure. That seems, and I never really thought of that because I didn't give 
purity culture, honestly, a lot of thought other than it was just this kind of weird evangelical thing that why would they put their their children through this? But this guy not only was tortured by it in his head, but he spent six months in treatment. That industry... Treatment with quotations. Yeah. Well, we would say that for sure. I'd be interested to see if his parents paid for it or if his insurance paid for it. And if so, what was his official diagnosis? You know, I wondered that too, because if you're in an addiction center and you have like an alcohol addiction or is there some other thing, then that can be covered. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, it very likely was his parents that would have paid for it, I would think. Either that or they put him in under something other than what they were treating him for. Uh, Those places didn't seem the type, though, that would do that. Uh, At least they talk, well, I guess they talk about 12-step, but they don't really talk about, at least in the the website, which were very basic. And one of them was like a WordPress site, the the kind of site that one of us could do in like 20 minutes from the templates. So it didn't strike me as the most, now maybe intellectually or diagnostically rigorous place, but they cashed three months of checks. Was one of them associated also with uh, gay conversion therapy? Believe so. And is there an equivalence between, like, not an equivalence, but are they kind of equally not suspect, but they're invented to promote a religious narrative? And well, in the sort of that connection between the two, because whether you're talking about gay conversion therapy or uh, uh, therapy to um, for individuals that identify as transgender to, you know, uh, kind of suppress that sort of gender identity, the connections between always make me think about like from an APA standpoint, from an ethical standpoint of psychologists, we are adamantly against gay conversion therapy or therapy for trying to fix, you know, um, what they say it as like try to, to, to for people that identify as transgender and, exactly. and sort of this yeah. idea of like, it, to me, it has a lot of similarities. Here's something that, that is not a, a mental illness. And we are going to tell you it's a mental illness. And we're going to provide all of this treatment for this mental illness and essentially tell you that what you're doing is wrong right? And make you feel bad. I don't want this to be considered, you know, any type of justification. But this is a guy who deeply religious at, at a young age, at a church that is pretty hardcore evangelical Christian. And he now goes into the teenage boy years where when you were talking about or earlier about kind of, you know, the hypersexuality, if, you know, you ask your average probably 16, 17-year-old boy, you're going to lock them all up. He's feeling them. He has been told and believes that it's bad. We, your parents, love you and care about you so much. We're going to put you in this treatment center where you can get help. And there is no help really to be found at a place like this because what they're trying to fix can't really be fixed. It doesn't work. You know what? We love you so much. We're going to do it again and send you to a different place for three more months. And you can pray and you could be one with your thoughts and you could cleanse yourself of these deep, dark, satanic urges. And shockingly, it still doesn't work for somebody like him who already thinks about this 
in terrible ways. Now he's a two-time loser from treatment. And what do I got to lose now? There is no hope for me. Is that kind of where his head was at before doing this? Is that plausible? Like these treatment centers just added gas to the fire? I mean, I think that's plausible. And I I think that, and again, there's no justifying, but you could see his him thinking like I'm these I'm these are such sinful feelings and I'm no hope of because uh, what I read is he said that he had thought about killing himself like he this idea of feeling like I'm so filled with sin for having these mm-hmm. impulses that I can't control and 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 feeling deeply I, the, the word that keeps coming to mind is sin filled yeah. you know of of like I. I'm, something is wrong, so deeply wrong with me. But it couldn't be him because he was the white guy from America that grew up in the church. It, it had to be the, the foreign women. Yes, yeah. And and seeing because, you know, the idea that, that women then are the source also to blame for his desire. I mean, that's clear in what he said, mm-hmm. that it was this desire, like, and he blames them for eliciting these sexual feelings and then says that he wants to kill them or and did kill them but to remove temptation from him and others you know that is it's like all the 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 blame is placed upon them which is very it you know it's full of racism sexism and misogyny yeah yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. yeah that they're to blame so how much how much then should his church be blamed and why aren't they coming under more scrutiny and and the third part to this question, I'm just going to keep asking questions. You won't remember what the first one is. <laughs> what does soul searching look like at a place like that after something like this? Is anything going to change? And Don, I don't want your opinion on that because I know your answer. <laughs> well, let me let me stick something in. Then I want to hear what, what Susan's take is on this. But I think where the church has kind of really uh, multiplied this detrimental effect is they've come out and said that he's out of the church that he's he's not of Jesus so basically you know he's going to hell so to me that tells anybody else that has these kind of natural human mindsets and urges that you know there's not even a place in the church for you if if you don't straighten your act out with these false programs so basically they had a meeting after one of the services they discussed the no true Scotsman fallacy. Yeah, he can't possibly be a Christian. So they voted that he did not believe in Jesus and he was out of the church. So Well, and then also, you know, the Albert Moeller, who's the president of yes. the Baptist Seminary in Louisville, and I can't remember the name of the, the seminary there, but it's like the the biggest seminary of, of the Southern Baptist Church. In his podcast, he pretty much said the same kind of thing. This guy could not possibly be of Jesus because, you know, we teach not to do harm to others and to ourselves. So to put that extra layer on other young men out there that, you know, they're having these natural sexual urges, you know, that the treatment didn't work. that you know, and, and so the last resort, the church is going to toss you out. I mean, that's really got to make things worse. They're, they're throwing mm-hmm. gas on the fire, I would think. So there's four questions there, Susan. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead and tie that in a neat little bow. Yeah. You know what? Pick any thread you want. You know, it's, there is so much stuff that you guys are talking about that I'm like, oh, I haven't thought about that. Or 
Welcome to the podcast. We do this every two weeks. <laughs> you know, I think one of the well, one of the things that um, is kind of the responsibility of like one of the questions was like, how much does the church have responsibility in this? And it, it's interesting because I was reading about how they came out with this statement. One thing I liked about the statement is they said the, the victims are have no blame in this because I was like, okay, because you know what? So often the victims can be blamed. Mm-hmm. And, and Especially in a sexual... Right, um, right. Know, if they're like... Because yeah. they could easily industry. say, right. oh, like, uh, we're going to devalue her, because uh, someone, um, because they were a sex worker, right? Mm-hmm. And then it was this, but yeah, then this this is not something we teach, not something we believe in, or, or yes, okay. Now, the idea of then saying that they're totally excommunicated, or I don't, he's not Chris, uh, Catholic, yeah. whatever, there's not excommunication, but to be like, you are not involved here it's kicked out fellowship whatever whatever the term is yeah Yeah. i don't i don't uh, yeah there's some term for it i do think about like what message for men to recognize like you're saying like to have feelings to have sexual desires is 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 incredibly normal there's a small group of people that identify as asexual but the majority of people have sexual desires and that is part of being human Mm-hmm. Um, it is completely normal. And so this idea to take these desires and turn them into something that to even think something is sinful and then to have males, if they're like, hey, I'm sh- I-, I have these feelings. And, and I always, you know, it's like you can choose what to do with those feelings. You can have feelings and you can decide are you going to act on them or not, right? And there's times that you may desire sex with somebody and they don't desire sex with you. And so you don't do it, right? There's Feelings and desires are different from actions. And what message is it going to send to other males that may be struggling with some of those, the the feeling of I have desires, I'm sinful, but now if I even speak about it, am I going to be kicked out of my church? That is something that I think is concerning. But the message is pretty clear. He was weak. And if you think that way, you could be out too. Except for he did kill people. Obviously, right? You know, so, obviously. I mean, I would, I would hope that. I, I mean, really, what the churches could do is, if if this could be a way of having some sort of conversation about what harm might be occurring to men, to women, by this, and it's a subculture of this purity. If there could be conversations about how that is harmful, um, and churches to really look at that critically. And, and and recognize that that they're d- damaging people. Yeah. That that if a church could come around and say, hey, we need to relook at this. That's the problem, though. That's not a business that really. I like to be optimistic. Really does a lot of that <laughs> critical analysis. Tell, tell about how hope kills, Jerry. <laughs> okay, I will say there is one person that I know of, and I haven't finished reading the book. It's by Nadia Boltz Weber. It's called Shameless. Oh, I know her. Have you? Um, she's really calling into play, and she's. Um, oh, I have she... a love-hate relationship with her. I'll just say that up front. Oh yes, <laughs> oh, I totally forgot. You do. Oh, you do. I don't know. Okay. I have a long history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does not have a love-hate relationship with her. No, I mean, I mean. Uh, I'm so sorry. Doesn't like her. <laughs> but I'm, I'm saying, you know, her thing on this purity culture thing. That's a positive move to try to get people, if her audience is towards evangelicals that are in that, 
that's a positive to try to move them out of there. She, but she's got a whole lot of other issues that I have with her. But. And here's the thing. <laughs> I, I know nothing about her, right? Except for, like, I, I had somebody recommend this book to me and, and was like, here's somebody who's challenging this purity culture yes, within yep. Christianity. And I think that that is a really... That's a good thing. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'll give her kudos so, for that. But. <laughs> is she like the Lincoln Project of uh, evangelical uh, Christianity? Yeah. I never would have thought of that. Just a, yeah. a tiny subset that liberals like us want to grasp, <laughs> want to go, oh, there is hope. She, isn't she the one with the, with the tattoos and she yep. looks yeah, like yeah, hip? Yeah, yeah. And, and other than this, kind of preaches the same old same old a little bit of the history is so i came out she was part of the emergent movement you know you you can, you can look all that stuff up ding but, ding so but yeah that was kind of like the lincoln project of trying to get people to move from hardcore evangelicalism towards more progressive theology the the problem is that movement has pretty much come to a standstill even though you know she's still putting stuff out the problem is the people that are buying that She's preaching to the choir. So where she's doing most of her speaking engagements are to evangelical, or not evangelical, ELCA. You know, so she's from the Evangelical Lutherans of America, the progressive end of that. So she's not getting to conferences at the Southern Baptist Conventions kind of thing. So that was the whole problem with the emergent movement was they were just kind of like speaking amongst themselves and never really getting a lot of people to move. That, but to be fair... That's a lot fair. of groups. That that's a lot of groups that kind of talk to themselves, kind of like yeah. hmm, the go- atheists, yeah. like the God yeah. of Heathens <laughs> podcast. But, but uh, you were you were talking about you know hopefully the, the churches will use this as a moment of introspection. But I mean, we see they they instead I I I would want to believe they did. I I doubt they did at the meeting where they voted him out of the church after the the meeting where they they made everybody leave and it was just church members. I wonder how much, and I'm thinking at zero, did they talk about what messages are, are we living here that may have fit into this? May, may have Obviously, there was a, not, I don't want to say a culture, but there was a, an environment that spawned this. Why? And, and what can we do different? Partially spawned it. I mean, should they take 100% of the blame? 50%? The problem is I, I, I doubt they even looked critically to look to see if they even had any blame in it whatsoever. Voted him out and absolved themselves and moved mm-hmm. on. Right. He, you Satan know what? got this Bad one. apple. Yeah, bad apple. We tried. The team took an L on that one. Well, in the same way as, you know, we can think every time there's gonna there's a mass shooting, we think, oh my gosh, is somebody going to take some um, accountability or responsibility and re-examine our, our culture and our gun laws or different things like that. And it doesn't oftentimes happen. I, I think even though I want to be optimistic that churches could do, I think we're a yeah. long ways away from that actually probably happening. But up And there's some people outside of the, the church, right, that have written, there's a book called The Purity Myth by Jessica Valenti that really di- and looks at like what is the harm and all the harm involved in the purity culture. But mm. she is like it's an outside look in big time and so i don't think there's a whole lot going on within evangelical churches looking at at this idea well and here's here's the other element that i kind of wonder about too is evangelicalism is on a broad spectrum also 
there's a very conservative rural evangelical church, you know, with the fire and brimstone pastor. And then on the other side, you have the seeker-friendly churches like the Rick Warren and the Andy Stanleys that are appealing to a much broader uh, slice of America. If you kind of look at their theology, the theology is very much the same. You know, like Andy Stanley, a few years back, did a, a series. He always does series. Yeah. And it was called The New Rules for Love, Sex, and Dating. And if you you know listen to that, he's kind of doing the same kind of theology as a conservative conservative evangelical churches in that you know the women are the ones that need to kind of tame their the way they dress and things like that and save themselves from marriage hussies show less ankles ladies well you know it's the temptation so i'm saying no matter how you package the church the message still at the root is kind of the same and, and their church also uses this same hope quest sex addiction 12-step program therapy or whatever to, to get out of it. So it's like, so they're part of the issue as well, even though we don't put the light on them. But are, are they having a conversation? That's a good question. I haven't heard of conversations about really looking at purity culture or what are the messages about if you essentially for me, the thing is, is I always think about like, one of the big problems with purity culture is it, it reduces somebody's value, right? And and this idea are, especially for girls, right? Because that's, again, I teach a lot in the women and gender studies. And I did a book club this last uh, semester on the purity myth, actually, with some students where we read it. And, and it's this idea that it's basically saying a girl's worth, her value, is, is her morality is dependent upon what her sexual experiences have been. Nothing to do with is she honest? Is she lie? Is she good? Is she kind? Like all these other things that actually, if we're going to talk about how do you make decisions, are you a moral person? What you're doing sexually, as long as it's consensual, is not related to are you a, a moral person? Do you know right from wrong? Do you know not to steal, not to kill somebody? You know, do you show compassion? And but it, oftentimes for women, this idea is it's all like narrowed down into this one thing, like, are you a good girl or a bad girl? Depending upon if you've saved your virginity to get married mm -hmm. and that for guys to control their urges, it's just, I think it's a really messed up way that we even think about somebody's goodness or badness. It doesn't make any sense, I don't think. They don't hear that on Sunday though, do they? I have never heard that on a Sunday, yeah. and I don't know of any groups that are talking in that sort of way of really looking at that. And I, I wonder, and again, I'm not a scholar in religion, so I don't, I have no idea about is there anything, this is just like from my lens of looking at mm -hmm. it, that I, I don't know of any of those conversations other than that one book, right, by Nadia. That's the only one mm -hmm. I've heard of. <laughs> And so, so I think there's you an absence. You mentioned conversation because Jeff this week had a insightful point about the Monday Pod Save America, where one of the hosts lamented that we needed a national conversation on everything that came out of the massage parlor shootings. And he was lamenting the fact that, you know, we just don't have, you know, we, don't, we should have a national conversation on guns and all this. And I had not listened to the podcast and Jeff sent a, to our group chat that was like, hey, you have that fucking conversation. You got a podcast. You're a national media company. Yeah. 
If only you had a platform. <laughs> right. When so when you and cause so now you said it and everybody says it, it's one of those things you kind of they you kind of say mindlessly but wistfully. You know what? We really need to have a conversation about that. Well, you can have these conversations, but the reason why we don't have them is because you have when you have these conversations, people are gonna be like, Whoa. They're all hot button issues mm-hmm. and I'm not gonna blame this on cancel culture, but it is a a good way to kind of tag it that you don't want to say anything that's going to offend. So you can't have that conversation. Yeah, that was my point of the Pod Save America podcast. Also, when they were talking about the Atlanta shootings, they only said one tiny blip about religion being part of that. And to me, and you know, and the this, rest of the media was the same way, right? And, and yeah, maybe that's just my my bias looking at it, seeing that your you lens, know, my lens that I'm looking through it. But it's like that at least has to be a big part of the conversation and but it doesn't the media doesn't want to go there they don't want to they don't want to bring christianity at all into the conversation that's off limits if that's the case then what conversation are you having superficial or none susan you look like you're about ready to jump through the screen <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> well because i was just thinking about for the for many years there was an absence of even talking about race in, in a lot of the shootings. Like there, it was one of these things that frequently, or gender, like the majority of, of shootings have been done by males um, and the majority of them are white men. And oftentimes that wasn't even covered in the media, like the, the narratives, the, the stories. And someone they know. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and a, large, a lot of times women in their life. And, and then it became, and so you're talking, you're right. I'm like, I feel like in some ways our society, because of Black Lives Matter and because of the Me Too movement, that every story I've heard about this identifies a white male and the majority of the victims were Asian women. And and it's like, okay, the media is finally beginning to like have some of these hard conversations, but they, every single one of them, well, or superficially, theoretically, we're trying to have the hard conversations, right? But I have not heard on any of the mainstream media about that he was evangelical and felt that these were the sin and the temptation. I heard a little bit about the sin, but it was just kind of like a little tag, a little thing in there. It's not there. People are afraid to have those hard conversations or to look at it, but we have to. Another prime example of the dots that I connected, and I'm sure others can connect them too, is the Ravi Zacharias uh, escapade where, you know, he he died, uh, died recently. And then they found out all of these different kind of sexual uh, abuses that he had, not just with his own employees, at Asian spas. He owned numerous Asian spas here in Atlanta and was abusing some of his female employees. The staff. Yeah. And, and his story by itself was very, you know, uh, lightly, if if ever, covered in the media. But also with, with you know, this last incident in Atlanta, that should have been a natural connection is like, huh, there's there's evangelical... Asian spa. What 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 is up with that? What is you this know is the sexualization the of, of church Asian spa story yeah. to come down mm-hmm. the pike in the last year? But you can't dig that deep that quickly. And if the guy from Crab Apple was Muslim from Somalia, we would be having a completely different conversation. No, the other the other bubble would be having that That's conversation. True. That's true. The conversation that our bubble. Well, the media would be having their conversation for them, but that's another story. Right, but our media would filter it a different way. The point is, when it happened, literally five miles 
from my house when, when the first shooting happened in, in Woodstock. There was a, a person of color, a gentleman, that was there. He was put in handcuffs and left in handcuffs for over an hour. Just four immediately. Hours, by the, hours, by the, yeah. Was it four hours? By the police. He was a customer. He just happened to be a person of color and was detained for four hours. Yeah, his wife was one of the wounded or uh, did she end up, di- I think she ended up dying. Not to be more, but she was laying inside dying while he was being detained outside. And he's trying to explain to the cops what's going on. But this guy was, was arrested peacefully with no, with no incident. How many days after the incident is this? Ten? Yeah, roughly ten. Right. And so since then, there was an even worse, from a number standpoint, shooting in Boulder. There's invented crisis that's dominating newscasts and presidential press conferences. Not one, you know, that I saw, you know, conversation about guns. And when I watched the MSNBC coverage that night, it was almost exclusively on the Asian massage parlor angle. And they tied it in with the increase in Asian hate crimes and violence, which which it seems a natural connection. Which ties back to the dotard calling it the China flu and all that. Yeah, sure. A hundred percent. And how many times have those networks had people on their air on MSNBC and CNN and Fox and the Sunday shows where they had somebody talk about the China virus or the Kung flu and over and over and over and over. And then when this happens, they're all outraged and, and they should be. It is a, it's, it's an atrocity on so many levels, but we did not get here without their complicity. And when you talk about that self-analysis, Susan, that churches won't do, there is zero reckoning going on in the media for what they might have done and how they could have covered it because they are afraid of going after certain angles and offending people and setting attack dogs on them on social media. So with all this happening, how are you supposed to have the conversation? How does it even get done? Please tell me. I'm going to take a sip of my beer now. All right, so one of you has the answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> Susan, you obviously don't listen. We have all the questions. We don't yeah. have any answers. That's yeah. why you're on here. Yeah. Nobody That's tunes exactly into this show for on. solutions. Okay. I have the, I have the artifacts that I have. Mm. Oh, beer too. What is that? Beer too. This is a whiskey pancake pastry stout from Printer's Ale in Carrollton, Georgia. Hmm. Sounds really good. Have you tried it before? Is it good? Uh, this is my second one. I started early. I had a like a <laughs> pregame. <Okay. laughs> it started Tuesday. <laughs> it, 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 it is. It is. The, it is the weekend. Yeah. Uh, well, and trying to ease the At pain the... of my of my shoulder from the injection. So you know, or the jab. There was also a thread of dumping on the South. Unfortunately, the completely overmatched and oblivious spokesperson for the Woodstock Sheriff. Cherokee County. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Cherokee Mm -hmm. County. Thank you. Made things worse by his insensitivity and unprofessionalism. But I think that, unfortunately, consumed a lot of the oxygen there, too, because he's an easy guy to get mad at. And what happened? Oh, 
This guy, he's obviously got some really bad tweets or Facebook posts. And, ooh, he did. Didn't take long. Keep the outrage machine going. Oh, let's have a conversation, though. <laughs> <laughs> the conversation on a national level is, is one that's needed, but it's it's like we have to do all the baby steps to get there. But even like having conversations like this one, like on your podcast, right? Or Or having the conversations in in our um whatever our spheres of influence are like for me that's my classroom right so or i create like when when i um did this book club about purity culture right and we all read this book uh just talking about things that made people uncomfortable um and 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 thinking about like that we have to create some spaces for this where we actually listen to what each other's saying rather than either that cancel culture of, of shutting people down or, or, um, you know, our preconceived ideas, right. Is like, it, but these are really complex, like nuanced things that you're talking about, because I think the, the, this, it wasn't just his church. It wasn't, I mean, it was easy access to a gun that same day made a difference living in a culture where there's uh, racism, um, especially, um, you know, against, um, you know, recently with um, Asian Americans or Asians is, is been normalized and seen as acceptable kind of creates this idea. Um, and and you, you, you add all these things together and, and it leads to this instance where, oh, and I forgot, how could I forget me being director of this program of misogyny, you know, and victim blaming and that this idea that he blamed these women for his desires, you know, all that kind of comes together. And so if you try to have a conversation, how you have to be, how do you cover all those different aspects? And, and, Oh, there's, there's one more angle to that. Sex work. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Or, or not because there seemed to be a, an effort not to like cleanse the background but to not even discuss it. And, and I, I get it, but, but very other, other groups and women especially are not afforded that luxury because we all grew up in the era where a crack whore was about as bad a slur as you could call somebody, and it was common. Mm-hmm. If a prostitute is killed, they'll say that she was a drug addict or she had all these problems. You, you're gonna, they're gonna go. You're gonna hear all the she reasons why she wound up that way. It's an unsafe job. Well, no shit, it's an unsafe job. That is part of that conversation. Is there a way to have a legal sex industry? You will never, ever have that conversation in our lifetimes. But those massage parlors and online porn. I didn't think we'd ever get to the point where weed was legal in so many places. And that's actually gaining steam. Sex work always is going to be stigmatized because of what it is, the religious connotations of it, the abuses that happen, the horrific abuses that happen. Mm -hmm. Trafficking. all, All of that. So where are you on the topic maybe in general, or related to this? Is that a conversation that, another conversation that we kind of should have, but we probably won't? 
I think that it is a conversation we for sure need to have because I think we, as a society, we really devalue anybody who's associated with sex work, you know? And so I, I think that I'm, on the one hand, like you said, Jerry, I'm glad that they didn't start talking about who was a somebody who worked there versus a customer or dry, pulling into was somebody engaged in, in sex work because you know then it would have been this kind of dehumanizing even further of, of the victims. Or what really happens at those Asian spas. Mm. Right. It, it fuels that stereotype, right? And, and they're... Right. they're um, and, but it does speak to this that in our, in our culture because we see women who engage in sex as less worthy and then if they engage in sex for money um we see them as less worthy although it's and to me it's always been fascinating that in a weird not not good way but like i like logically i don't understand how we can say somebody is having sex for money is illegal if it's sex work but having sex for money if it's filmed is legal because that's pornography Mm -hmm. like that makes no sense if you can give it away for free and there's no problem there. You should be able to sell it. And our laws are messed up. If you're 14 years old and you're caught as a sex worker, you're prosecuted or 15. Mm-hmm. But you're not old enough to give consent, right? So it's just we have a lot of messed up things about how we look at that. But I do think, like, we should have conversations about how... Because, you know, sex workers are very, they're totally not protected in any way. If somebody hurts them or beats them or they agree to one sex act and not another, then um, they have no recourse because they can't go to the police and say, I agreed to do this. I didn't agree to do that. And this person did it, which is rape or assault. And they have no, they have no rights. And they're blamed for it. They do. They get blamed. And it's just another way we do this victim blaming in our society. Mm-hmm. So we need that to add that conversation as well, Jerry. Another conversation. <laughs> it's going to be a long conversation. <laughs> to that national conversation. I feel like I can have these individual conversations with you guys because we go further back and I can say things like I have in this podcast that you're like, bruh. Or you can call me out on it. And Susan, we've had all kinds of these conversations where you know, we don't disagree or we don't agree and we approach it from different angles. And if I didn't know you and you didn't know me, it'd be like, the guy's an asshole. She is such a bitch. I mean, hey. you, know, like, <laughs> you call me an asshole. But to be able to have those conversations, you've got to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. How many times on social media, when you see a post from somebody that you don't agree with politically, you don't give them a lot of benefit of the doubt, nor do they give it to us. You don't read it with quite the nuance. <laughs> no. You don't think that they, they actually have a family that they care about, that they treat well, and they may be okay people, but boy, that tweet, dunk on them hard. But Susan, like your book club, that's with your students. I mean, so that's kind of like taking it a little bit of a level above just friends hanging around a fire pit, having a conversation. So that's a little bit more dangerous territory, probably, especially with, you know, the topic you were talking about with Nadia Boltz Weber's book. So do you guys have that space that you that you can have an honest conversation or is it kind of limited? And, and the other thing, I, you know, you probably want to talk about a little bit. Barry College is not like a, a liberal, typical college. And it's, it's not a Christian college, but it's 
Christian influenced. It's a non-denominational Christian, yeah, influenced college. Maybe is the best way to phrase it. But it's and it has an interfaith community, but it does have Christian roots for sure. And and right, I would right. say them a, a, a fair number of our students are. Well, and of course, I teach in the Women and Gender Studies program, so you have to realize students that are willing to take one of my classes it's are going to be bit, a little yeah. bit more um, open to different ways of thinking. Do you have to have Tevas or Birkenstocks to be in your class? No. <laughs> okay. Does it count for extra credit, though? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a hacky sack tournament at the end of this? No, I don't even know how to play hacky sack. What are you talking about? <laughs> So, but there's been times on campus we have something that's called they're like these events and and they're cultural events and and I have done some which is campus wide and people will come they're not necessarily one of my students and I've had some that are are um, and I will say my administration has sometimes they've gotten calls about some of my events and they have been like hey this like they've backed me up on on some of the things like there's a documentary called the purity myth that's great and I showed it on campus and we had a Mm, conversation afterwards about it but i strive always in whether it's my classroom or these smaller book clubs or events on campus that i try really hard to try to listen create safe spaces for people to express some of their ideas and if somebody starts to attack another i'm like hold on hold on and and i think being a clinical psychologist I'm used to that. I've run groups. I've had very contentious patients. I I can handle people not being okay, like emotions getting heated, you know, so I think I feel more comfortable leading some of those discussions because I've had the skills to kind of diffuse situations. I do know that most of the students that are going to enter my classes are going to be more um, open open-minded than others. So you really know better than anybody that those conversations are difficult to have. What I was going to say, too, is the people in your class are going to talk to other students that aren't in that class. Correct. And so they're going to have conversations you're not even aware of mm-hmm. that might kind of open, you know, a little bit of space there. So One of the things that's interesting is I teach online. Most of Barry's face-to-face, but for um, I have a medically complex family, so I teach online this year. And um, I've had people say... We've been listening into your Zoom classes. Like roommates will sit behind, and I don't even know that they're listening. Uh, <laughs> and mm. they listen into some of my <laughs> my talks. And then I've had some email me afterwards, and I it's just kind of this weird sense of I'm like actually it's, it's like cool. a human smart speaker. <laughs> but it's just funny. I'm like, wait, you're not in my class. How did you know that? <laughs> um, I want to zoom in now. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. You talked about having a safe space, and to a lot of people. That sounds That's a dirty like word for a lot of every episode of Portlandia. So how do you how do you rebrand or destigmatize the idea of a safe space that takes it out of the satirical realm of people holding hands and oh we don't talk that way, which also can be a way of suppressing things that other people want to talk about. So when you say safe space, a lot of people are going to be like, mm, you know, like, okay, the only thing I, only time I've ever been in a safe space, I was not allowed to talk. So what's the point? That's, that's a good thing. And it's funny when I say that, because how it means to me is very, of course, different than, than that. Like, I think in, I probably, 
I don't think I use the term. I hope and now I need to be careful not to use that term in my actual classes, right? Or they're all going to be like sitting there quietly. Uh, <laughs> I I usually I talk about like um, I say like you know one of the things is everybody can express their 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 views, but I I'm huge on respect. I'm like, we have to be respectful of everybody. And and there's times that people will say things and I can see people in the room sort of bristling. And then I'll usually be like, okay, hey, so I kind of noticed the tension in the room is shifting here. So I think some people are feeling uncomfortable. Let's talk about that. Or who here has a different opinion that hasn't had a chance to express it? Like trying to to create that sense of like, and I tell my students, you can challenge me. I am teaching your class, but I don't know every single answer. You're going to, we're all going to have different opinions on things. And that's, that's, that's cool. And I actually like that, but I, t- I, and maybe it's just, you know, I teach about lots of controversial topics over the years. So, I mean, every single one that can cause a lot of controversy in society, I tend to cover hmm. whether it's transgender or abortion or, privilege, white privilege, or race privilege, or gender privilege, all the things that make people usually get pretty heated. So those same skills would be really good in your average Zoom meeting, and they're hard to enforce because usually there's not somebody there to enforce the rules. I started, Don and Jeff, thinking about the old deep dives where there were a bunch of us would get together at a a local bar in Marietta and talk about deep topics. We'd set ground rules and people would follow them for a little while. And then about five minutes. Yeah. Maybe sometimes 30. (laughs) And then they would oftentimes break down because to have that, you in a way kind of got to be rude to basically shut other people up. The more we talk about this, the more when, when we say we got to have a conversation, it's such a pat and meaningless term to almost say, I'm really concerned and we should talk about it, but ah, it's too hard and I don't want to get in trouble for it. So we're not going to talk about it. Maybe they should all just get podcasts and talk to their friends. (laughs) Hey, that's a step. (laughs) What were the ground rules that you guys set up? I'm curious. At one point we got to where we had a small stuffed animal. And if you weren't holding the stuffed animal, you could not talk. (laughs) Yeah, it was like a speaking stick. Yeah, kinda, speaking kinda stick. Yeah. Okay. That little stuffed duck or whatever it was got passed around the bar, and whoever was holding it had the floor and got to speak, and then they passed it off. And Jeff played moderator. Oh, so and so hasn't talked in a while. Let them talk, and then we'll go to this okay. person, and then we'll go to that person. Yeah, and we try to do that on our Zoom deep dives. Also, I mean, at least there you can like see the yellow highlight on who's talking, who's dominating the conversation. Yeah. So you can say, well, I haven't seen such and such add something to the conversation in a while. So, but yeah, I mean, that is important to try to moderate and give people voices that haven't, because personalities are, are, are so different. Some people want to dominate the conversation. Some people just want to listen. And, you know, I respect that also. If you don't want to say, you know, have anything to say, that's fine. So having a conversation is a very challenging thing to do from the onset. Would it be easier if you had the ability to state kind of your biases without judgment? I think it would be exceedingly difficult because afterwards they'd be like, he said that he 
a little bit of a misogynist. Unfortunately, my bias towards your bias would not allow me to uh, let that slide. So. <laughs> <laughs> we could all have taglines of what all our biases are. We could just get t-shirts printed. They could just be right on the front. <laughs> so this is, these are my biases, so you know up front where I'm coming from. Yep. <laughs> Well, and of course, we all have our biases, and then we also all have the way we see things, which are influenced by our lived experience, just our lives growing up and how we've been treated or things we've experienced from our all of those. And we talk about a lot our social location, right? Your gender, your race, your social class, your age, your religion or lack of religion, your orientation, all of that sort of stuff. It 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 influences how we even see. Things. So it's almost like we need a list of biases and then we need a list of what all of our social identity variables are. <laughs> well, not just, not just biases, but like what our shortcomings are, though. I mean, it's, it's like, so I lack information in these categories. And so enlighten me. I'd like to know more on the topic here with the, uh, the, the you know, the Asian spas is like, I didn't realize there's such a diversity in some are truly therapeutic massage parlors. And that's what they are. Some not so much, but you know. But the culture just kind of stereotypes Asian spas as being all sexual places. So there's a lot of education I think that has to go on as far as our our, our own biases. Mm-hmm. Well, the bias is that some place where you can go to have a sexual experience is bad. It's illegal and it's sinful. That's the first bias. The first stigma is that that type of sex work is inherently wrong. Mm -hmm. Other than people coming in and shooting it up, you don't hear about a lot of crime around these Asian spas. It's not like police don't know. There are things going on. For Christ's sake, the owner of the New England Patriots got busted at one. Tom Brady's boss. Because he had good lawyers, he eventually had every charge against him dropped. And what, and the reason why he was even busted was because they were doing, I believe, a bust because they were concerned about trafficking. Well, if you didn't make it illegal and didn't turn it into an underground economy, maybe that wouldn't happen. We're not having that conversation. But it, I, have, I think if you have that conversation, one of the things though is that is when you think about trafficking, it is really, it's like in every time, I think one of the things that shuts down conversations about sex work being legal or not is, is because we know that there are people that are trafficked. And how do you distinguish, right? Because who are people that are, are choosing fully, like as an actual not coerced, not drugged, not trafficked, that they're choosing to do that type of work? And then how do you distinguish that from people that are trafficked into it, you know? And, and, And of course, you have to make that distinction because you don't want to legalize if if it's legalizing trafficked individuals to say, you know, and of course, nobody wants to legalize human trafficking. So but we have to get smarter and figuring out who who's trafficked and and who maybe is choosing it. So has the has the nation, this nation taken a step towards normalizing sex work by the explosion of OnlyFans accounts? Of only what? What? OnlyFans? I don't know what that that. is. What what is that? Come on. Are we the only two that knows what OnlyFans is? Seriously? I don't know what it is. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? 
<laughs> Miss Gender Studies, you should know what this and is. Now you will. You should. And now you will. I love learning you new things. Know. Okay, school me. Tell me. <laughs> Do-it-yourself at home porn. Oh, I've yeah. heard of that, of course, but I didn't know that's what OnlyFans is. Yeah. People pay a monthly or whatever fee, and they have access to private photos and videos that you post. I'm not going to ask how you guys know of this, but, you know. <laughs> well, if you read The Friendly Atheist, the latest story was the woman in Sacramento whose kids were kicked out of Catholic school because the administration discovered her OnlyFans account. The mothers? The mothers. The, yeah, the mother of two children. And there's been a, a couple of like high school teachers that had OnlyFans accounts that their, yeah. their, their students found out about them. And yeah. The California case, she did it to spice up their marriage. And all of a sudden, it spiced up their bank account in a huge yeah. way. So the, 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 the school administration, I think the kids were like eight and five, kicked them out. And after they did that, and she became a nationwide story, she said, I'm trying to find another Catholic school for them to go to. Yeah. It happened. That whole genre blew up during the pandemic. And if you are scrolling through TikTok... For any amount of time, you will get these videos that is a promotion for their OnlyFans sites. Hmm. And it does feel like the middle classization of yep. porn. But it's okay because it's middle class people and a lot of white people and they're doing it from their home and it's consensual. And, sterilized. and yep. you know, and they're using technology and nothing bad ever happens when you use technology. We told the gender studies. Professor. And now you know. Uh, I yeah. know. And now when I talk in my class, I'm mm. going to be like, oh, you guys know the OnlyFans site. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you want me to come in and talk to your class, just, you know, hit me up. You got my email. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I, I, but one of the, one of the other reasons this popped up was people lost their, people lost their jobs and their livelihoods during the pandemic. Yeah, over it. And what happens is you turn to sex work. And just because you can get to it through TikTok, which is another story in and of itself, when you got a 14-year-old scrolling through stuff and you're trusting the TikTok algorithm not to feed you that kind of content. Or Twitter. I mean. Same. Both yeah. of them. Yeah. So we are already, we are kind of normalizing it for certain people. Yeah. In certain situations. Yeah, but there's consequences, though. And that's kind of well, stigmatizing there's, it. Stigmatizing. It seems really. to it, yeah, they correlate sure. along with skin tone, though. Apparently, unfortunately, like a lot of things do. And socioeconomic yep. group. Yep. Well, and and there's even when you look within the uh, the field of sex of sex work, you know, there's high end sex workers who are. I mean, there's people that they have just a couple of very very wealthy clients. And there's even things like I, I know one of my daughter's friends was saying like, oh, well, maybe the way I should pay for college is to get a sugar daddy. She said it in joking, but she had this thought of like, well, actually, there's some research that shows that there are some college students that that's the way that they're paying for their college. There's a very different um, lens that's looked at social work, how it intersects with both skin color and how much money is being made social class, like what groups of and Right. That that economic that that economic equation is the same. You pay for exclusivity. Yep. If you have the money, then you you you're doing it in an entirely different realm than a lot of other folks. And 
why wouldn't that be the case in our unequal society? And because, yeah, because when you see like if, if it comes down to economics and I think it's this idea that autonomy, right? If you have somebody who has other sources of income and they could do other jobs and they don't feel they're not forced into this or and they're like, hey, I look at this from an economic standpoint, I decide that this is something that I want to do. That is a very different individual than someone who has been forced or trafficked or has no other recourse yeah. to gain money. And and so when you look at the whole continuum, you have to look at all those nuances in there. It's not a society that does nuance yeah. well, unfortunately. But we did a lot of nuance on this podcast. Yes, we did. <laughs> uh, for, I mean, for real, I, I'm so glad you came on because, oh, great you know, it, it's a good conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. And hope you thought it was as interesting as I think I'll speak for the three of us that we did. <laughs> Appreciate your time and going through all the technical foibles. Thank you. Hours and yours. Well, it was really enjoyable. And I love that. Um, actually, I, I very much enjoyed hearing from you all and your questions. And I learned something new. And so. <laughs> <laughs> and not just Professor not just Cobb? that little not knowing what that, that one thing is, but also just <laughs> other ways of um, questions and thinking about things. So. Hey, hey! Do you have have a recommendation for the for the group? And we can cut this out if a you recommendation don't. of what we usually close with a recommendation. And and actually, if you want to plug the book that you recommend, oh, recommend yeah. earlier, okay. that's a perfect one. Yeah. If you uh, if well. you want to plug Nadia's book, go ahead. <laughs> ruffle Jeff's feathers, <laughs> and I will enjoy it greatly. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I Jeff, I give her I give her props for this particular. Book. Book. Okay. Well, do you know what? Then I'm going to plug two books, though. Really, one is because it's the Nadia Bowles Weber Shameless, a sexual uh, reformation. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the one that I did with my um, students, um, and actually another faculty member joined in, is The Purity Myth by Jessica Valenti. She's a prominent feminist. Um, So two very different sort of looking looks at um, perspectives. I'll put links to both of them in the show notes. Well, let me quick ask you. So what's what's the disparity be- between the two? Jessica Valenti um, doesn't come from any sort of a Christian or religious angle, per se. Okay. Like, um, okay. I, I, I don't even, I'm not, I have no idea what her religious beliefs are. When she writes it, she's not conveying one way or the other. Secular. Secular, kinda, yes, kinda, thank you. Yep, yep. Um, and then she's Nadia. She's a journalist. Bowles, yeah, she's a journalist. Nadia Bowles-Weber yeah. um, comes from it from within a Christian um, viewpoint of and is is challenging that that the purity culture trying to re rethink that yes. yeah 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 for sure all right thank you guys so much for having me on oh absolutely Jeff your book so the book that I'm currently reading is called Kill Switch um, the rise of the modern Senate and the crippling of American democracy um, this book kind of and this is by Adam Gentleson it's kind of talking about the um, um, filibuster. The filibuster. Yes. Thank you very much, Jerry. And it, it's like showing the racist history uh, behind this this whole thing. So it needs to go away. It, you know, it, it's not a democratic movement at all. So I highly recommend this. He's got he's done a lot of interviews on some podcasts and things. So if you just want to Google Adam Gentleson, G J E N T. L-E-S-O-N. He's done a lot of interviews. So that's a good segue because one of the best interviews or one of the more interesting ones that I heard him do was on the Chris Hayes. Yes, um, yes. Why is this happening podcast? 
And that is actually my recommendation as he interviews a journalist named Alec McGillis about his new book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. And it talks about, he talks about how the economies have changed, how it changes where success can be had and where it is not, where Amazon has fueled hyper prosperity, where the quote actual real work is done, where they're still fighting a unionization effort in Alabama. Oh, they still are. They haven't uh, voted on that yet, huh? I, I, I don't believe they have yet. How and Amazon's profits have gone up like crazy during the pandemic. But his interview with Alec McGillis is terrific. And I want to read the book, but I know it's going to bum me out. Well, y'all come with your hottie toddy, with your books, with your deep thoughts and stuff. I got just like <laughs> mindless entertainment. <laughs> we need that as a balance. Save us. All right, two things. This episode will be released on the morning of Sunday the 28th. And on that day, a few hours after this episode is released, the F1 season officially starts. And also a recommendation for The Drive to Survive, the F1 documentary on Netflix. Uh, Check that out as well, too. Oh, 100%. You could watch all three seasons. It's fantastic TV. And I thought episode nine for the fire. The Grosjean crash in the fire. From the, the visuals to the storytelling, the interviews. That was like the best episode of that three-year run that I think I've seen. And I, I it was great. We binged that one just like that and made Kelly an F1 fan. Go. Wow. Well, a convert. Yeah. Nice. Well, it's a religious term. On that note, we'll see you all in two weeks. Bye now. All right. Thanks again, Susan. Just bumped off.